Sounds like quite a nice concept, doesn't it? Free freedom. It's the best kind of freedom. It's the only kind of freedom. I was uh, very happy to receive for probably the, maybe the fifth time yesterday from um, one of our listeners, the compliment, Station 13 is very relaxing. I'm, yeah, I feel relaxed already. We've only been doing this for, for two minutes. <laughs> we got some feedback, yeah. which I wanted to mention, or I wish I could have mentioned last episode, but uh, through a, a technical glitch, which means I just didn't set up Twitter properly, I, I only noticed it just after we finished recording the last episode. Mm. So we didn't get to mention this in, in the last episode. But listener Mark, who is teaching at a primary school in Scotland tried out Kibasen with his kids. Nice. At the primary school. So it's it's taking over the world. It's your you've introduced this this Japanese art. <laughs> Calling it a martial art is a bit much, but Well the amazing thing is that uh, like we said in that episode, it's uh, amazing how sort of blase Japanese people are about Kibasen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Apparently it was a lot of fun. They they really enjoyed it, and they got away with only one twisted arm. So for a first attempt, that's quite good. It's not a bad injury injury to fun ratio. It's quite good. I can imagine that if it actually became a thing, you would imagine that uh, probably primary schools would set regulations requiring safety equipment, and all of a sudden you'd be stealing not hats off people's heads, but you'd be stealing like full on helmets. Yeah, I don't know if it could. I mean, I'm slightly surprised that this was possible because we, we used to play a game when I was young called Bulldog, which I can barely remember now, but it was, you you all lined up on one side and then you're going for, what was it? Essentially, it ends up in these two sets of kids just running at each other and it, it always caused injuries and uh, and it got banned. So when I first got to England which was in 1992, uh, it was quite popular in the playground. And I think it got banned within a year or two of that. So I, I only just got to see it. But Amazing. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Kibasen becomes popular, the, uh, the fun police will be onto it next. Amazing. The, about the, uh, the most violent thing that we had at my primary school was probably marbles. Uh, conkers conkers can get pretty violent yeah i don't suppose do you do you, do you get conkers in australia no I, we never had that i know what they are but uh no we never had that that we had yo-yos marbles and skateboards i mean there's i mean everything's dangerous really yeah have you ever have you ever done conkers no could you explain how it works so what it is is you go in in england britain in the autumn you get a lot of these conkers falling from trees which are very hard I don't know what I don't know another word for them, but conkers. But I presume there is one. Wait, wait a minute. What exact? My only definition in my mind of a conker is uh, is a part of the male genitals. Um, what's <laughs> what exactly is a conker? I, I can see how that happened. It is the seed of horse chestnut trees. Ah, is what it is. And I will put a link to I'll put a link to the game of conkers in the show notes so you can see the whole the whole game and what a conker is because there there is a picture. Uh, of them here yeah. right and so they're they're round about the size of a testicle right and very hard brown nut like things and so what you do is you drill a little hole through them and you thread some string through that right and then you you tie a knot in the other end of the string so you've got this conker right sort of hanging from the end of your string and then 
the, the other person does the same. And then what you're doing is the, the other person holds their string at the top of the string with the conker hanging down. And so it's hanging loose. And the, the person whose turn it is holds the end of the string in, for me, it would be my left hand, and then pulls the conker back in the right hand and tries to sort of throw it to hit the other person's conker. I see. To break it. The aim is to break the other person's conquer. So if you've uh. got the hardest conquer, then you win, basically, because you you know the, the other softer conquers get torn apart. Right, break. I see. And, so, and I think you just take it in turns uh. to hit each other. So if, if we were playing, you would hold your, you know, you'd be holding your conquer down, and I'd try and hit it once. And then whether I hit it or not, it would then be your turn, and I would hold my string with my conquer hang down and you would try and hit it i see and we just repeat that until one of the conquers breaks i see so the rules the rules sound pretty simple they are yeah but again you know you can easily whether by accident or through being a nasty horrible child end up hitting things other than the conquer like the, the hand holding the conquer or faces faces or well any any part of the human body really right so that's that's another one that gets a bit of a I think people do still play that, but it has a bit of a reputation for being a, a little bit dangerous as well, I think. What I, um, um, you know, it's, it's fantastic to hear that Mark uh, in Scotland tried out Keep Us In at the primary school. But one, one, one thing I'm a little bit jealous of, Mark, is that um, one thing that is really great about watching primary school children is when they are unsupervised, when they are creating their own games for themselves to play. Mm. the the ability for young children together to to create systems of play is just incredible and the finest example i can recall of this during my primary school is the marble craze that we had traditional marbles in for example my father's day in australia uh in his time there was a circle on the ground and marbles i'm not sure the i think the marbles were either placed or kind of flicked with your thumb into the middle of the circle and I think the idea was to use your marbles to to flick your marble into the middle of the circle, hit another one out, and then you take that or something. I'd have, I have to confirm it with my dad because I think he, right. uh, in his day, that that was the way that they used to play. Anyway, uh, in my ta in my day, um, uh, there was this whole system, and anybody who um, any of my you know the the fellow students who went to my primary school can probably remember in great detail that. There was, you, you first need to barter to work out whether the marbles that you're going to be playing for are worth it, like whether you're doing a fair exchange. So I would have a marble, you would have a marble, and then we would, I would say, okay, I want your insert predefined name of marble here, because they all had names. And then you, you would say, well, no, I don't think that um, your, for example, uh, let's see if I can remember some of the names of them. I don't believe that your parrot, which was the name of a kind of, marble is worth my my galaxy so i'll play my galaxy for your parrot and one of your cat's eyes right oh i see yeah but um so you can choose which one you want to play with but if i win i want both of them so you agree to that and the way that you sort of you know the, the sort of gentleman's handshake to say okay this is the deal that we're going to do mm. is that you take the marble that you're going to play with and you click them together and i think it was Two clicks together means that you're going to have a practice run. Three clicks means that this is the game. So now we are committed to this game and this deal. And then the way that, because the primary school had a very large schoolyard uh, and, um, you know, wonderful uh, 
uh, Australian schoolyards, lots of grass and trees and dirt and sort of lots of natural terrain and um, like little mounds and stuff like that. Uh, there was also a sort of um, a playground area that had uh, chips set for, for safety, but that, that they made for excellent terrain for playing. The idea was very simple, that now you, you flick the marble, hold it on your pointer finger and flick it with your thumb. Mm. And the idea is that all you have to do in this game is to hit the other person's marble. So you're sort of trying to keep distance from each other. You uh, flick it off once, then you go to where you flicked it, and then you pick it up, and from where you stand... You can then rotate your body and flick it again. Right. So kind of like golf in a sense. Right. It's kind of like playing golf with two people, two balls, and the idea is basically to hit the other person's ball first. And if you hit the other, yeah, if you on your turn, if you get the other person's marble, then that means you've won and then the deal goes through and you get their parrot and cat's eye or whatever it was I just said. The, the amazing thing was that this whole hierarchy of these marbles that uh, every one of them, and you know, there's there's hundreds of different varieties of marbles. Every one of them had names, and they had sort of a, a place in this hierarchy of value. Of course, of course, and and I imagine that shifted over time as well. One something that was valuable once may not be so valuable later, or anything like that. Exactly, because some lucky kids, you know, had their parents buy them marbles instead of winning them on the on the field. <laughs> right. That upsets the market. <laughs> exactly, and and you know, you have. Um, I remember there was a guy called Stephen. Who, he was the man. He was like the boss. And he walked in. At the time, there was these uh, plastic mini- miniature rubbish bins that, that were popular for a while. And he like walked in with this big, massive yellow bucket of marbles that he'd sort of accumulated. And he had, he had, wait for it, the, the, the holy grail, the, the crown jewel of uh, the primary school. He had it. And it, you know what it was? It was actually a ball bearing. A ball bearing. Oh, wow. And uh, the ball bearing was the absolute top because uh, we, it was called a steely because it's like shiny ball bearing. And it was it was around the same size as a marble, uh, but it was really heavy right. and sort of uh, beautifully shiny, obviously, being steel. Uh, and and Stephen had it and you could not win it off him. Like for You'd have to sort of barter... You know, all of your galaxies. Galaxies were these really nice ones that were sort of dotted with uh, like a splattering of paint so that they right. actually looked like sort of stars in a nebula. And you, they were very, very valuable. And you could like be trying to play, you know, sort of three galaxies, maybe even a large size galaxy uh, for his Steely, but nobody could ever get o- get it off him. It was like the legacy of Stephen's Steely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, just before we move on to some new topics, I wanted to just uh, follow up one thing uh, from the last episode. Sure. I embarrassed myself with my incredibly shocking knowledge of ancient history. Uh, so I just I went to the trouble just of checking it up. The Parthenon was constructed, completed in 432 BC. Okay. And uh, it took 15 years to complete, which is amazing. 15 years. 15 years. Although actually, 15 years is is actually pretty impressive in terms of, you know, it's quite short when you compare it to a lot of other great works of architecture, like the, the cathedrals of Europe and uh, the Sagrada Familia in, in Barcelona, which has been worked on for decades and decades. Mind you, the, the Parthenon's not not that big. You know, it's 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 large. And obviously the, the work involved in getting all that marble up the hill right. uh, and then getting it built into that uh, that tall structure is, is just unbelievable. But, uh, you know, compared to the other larger structures, it's not that big. The pottery that I saw that I mentioned in um, the uh, museum in Athens, that dated back to approximately 1000 BC. So 
I said about two to three thousand years ago. So I was sort of right, give or take a thousand. That's close enough, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yes. Anyway, just a few little corrections there from last episode. So I apologise, especially to my father, who is who is a, a a great man of history. He was probably cringing as he <laughs> heard his son embarrassing himself with his uh, terrible with his uh, terrible oh, terrible. He's he's off by. 100 or so years something that happened 3000 years ago i might as well discern him <laughs> just see it now that's right <laughs> my skype got hacked this morning i was gonna suggest i was actually going to i was considering suggesting that we try using skype to do this recording today right because we usually use facetime right and it's fine but i know that skype is very popular in podcasts so i thought well you know might as well try that as well right I had this vague idea, but I hadn't really followed through on it. And then I got an email from Microsoft this morning mm. saying, you've added a new email address to your Skype account. If this was you, don't worry about it. If it wasn't you, then click this button because some funny business might be going on. Right. And then I got another email within seconds of this email saying... You've removed an address from your Skype account. Oh, no. <laughs> it was my address. So now my Skype account is only linked to one address, which right. is an address I do not have control of. Ah. And Microsoft have a process by which you can report this and say, I think that somebody's trying to take over my account. Mm. But uh, the first step in that process is an automated system which asks you some questions that the owner of the account should be the only person who would know, or, or rather questions that the owner would know, like your birth date and your first and last name and the first and last names of three contacts that you have on Skype. Right. And the email address you use to open your Skype account and a couple of passwords you've used with that Skype account in the past. Right. The thing is, I haven't used Skype in probably five or ten years wow it's been a very long time since i've used skype and so i have forgotten a lot of these details i know my birth date my first and last name i don't remember the email address that i used to sign up for it because uh -huh. i know that i first used skype before i had my current email address and i put in some names of people that i'm pretty sure would be on my contact list but I got an email back a couple of minutes later saying you haven't been able to provide enough information that we can identify you as the account holder. So I'm a bit stuck. I've lost my I've lost my Skype account. Wow. So <laughs> there is somebody out there posing as as you calling around. I don't know what they're doing. If I could log in, I'd be able to look at my history and see what they're doing. So your password has changed. Yes. Um, and the forgot password link doesn't work because it'll only send it to this new email address that's been registered that isn't mine. Wow. So, and it's so frustrating because I think I mentioned to you a little while back, but I, I went through recently and went through all my accounts and did a bit of a security audit because I had seen that, you know, my password, I, especially on older accounts, I did do the uh, very bad thing of reusing my password in a few places. And that password had been leaked. Mm. I knew it had been leaked because of a site that I mentioned on the first episode, but I mentioned it again. It's called haveibeenpawned.com. Right. That's pawned with a W-P-W-N-E-D. Right. And I recommend for, for everyone listening, 
to just go in there and stick in their email address. And what that will do is it will look at all the known about public leaks of passwords from various places like the big Sony PlayStation leak that happened a few years ago, the Yahoo one, the LinkedIn one, there's a few quite well-known ones. Yep. And those those leaks tend to have the email address and either your your actual password mm. in plain text or the encoded version of your password, which can't be traced back to the original password. But that doesn't matter for the purpose of this site. All this Have I Been Porn site does is it looks for your email address. It doesn't ask you to put in your password or compare the password to make sure that it's the one that's been leaked or anything like that. Right. It just identifies your email address in these lists. And if your email address appears, it sends you an email and says your password for whatever service it was has been leaked. And then you know know about it and you can check it out. By entering your password into this site, you're not you're not uh, entering a password into basically a, a spam system, are you? You you don't enter your password into this site. That's that's the important thing. You enter your email address into this site, but not your password. That, that's what I meant. Sorry, by entering your your email address, you're basically not signing up for uh, you're not signing up for for spam, are you? No. The guy who runs the site is a guy called Troy Hunt, who's quite well known in security circles, and he, he tweets a lot. So it's, it's a great name for somebody in security who's searching, so, <laughs> hunting around to see if your password has been stolen. Isn't it? <laughs> it is quite, isn't it? Anyway, uh, he's worth following on Twitter as well. I'll put a link in the show notes because I can't remember what his account is off the top of my head. It's probably Troy Hunt, but anyway, uh, he he. So he's you know he's somebody that I kind of trust to begin with. Okay, because that is obviously a danger that any site like this, you put your email address in. You know, you're, you're just signing yourself up for a load, a load of, you know, that email address is going to be sold all over the place. Right. But in this case, I trust the guy and he doesn't ask for my password or anything like that. There's no way that you can request that he tells you what the password that was leaked for that email address is. The only thing he does is when your email address appears in one of these lists, he emails you. I see. And so I got one of these emails saying you've been hacked. And I thought, well, this is a good chance to go through and and read all my passwords. Because for the past few years, I've been using a, a password manager called 1Password. Yes. Do you use a password manager? I use the same one, 1Password. Right. Okay, yeah. So there, there's a few of these uh, tools available. 1Password is the one that I use and know, so I can recommend it. But I'm sure the others are... Uh, uh, there are others, at, and they are good. But you do need to be very careful because the entire object of these applications is that you will put all your passwords for everything in them. Right. And, you know, if you don't trust the people who are making the app, they could just be sending all those passwords back to their own database and, and, uh, and you've lost all your passwords or you've given away all your passwords. So this... This password manager is is a very well-known one. It's very popular. And so, again, uh, it's by a company called Agile Bits, and I, I trust them to look after my password. They're also quite good about being upfront when they have problems mm. uh, and, and writing blog posts about that and things. So there are other ones, but if you're going to go with another one, definitely do your 
research because you, you want to make sure that it's a service you can trust. Yeah, I think the the two the other main commercial contender is one called LastPass. Right. Yeah. And there is also a very good open source contender uh, called KeePass. That is what I used before one password. Yeah, it's exa- exactly the same with me. It's K E E Pass, and I think uh, there's a Mac version called KeePass X. Yep. Um, same with you. I used KeePass as well, and uh, KeePass has a a nice little uh, mobile phone app. That goes with that somebody's written. It's all open source, and I believe the 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 sort of the benefit that's touted there in being open source is that well, actually, being a programmer, you're probably better qualified to discuss why an open source password manager is a better idea than a than a closed source commercial one. But I went through the same uh, pathway. I, I started with KeePass, and then I think one password was doing some kind of sale or something. I thought oh, I might as well give this commercial one a try as well, and and sort of migrate to that. Do do you um what benefits are there for a is, so KeePass is encrypting passwords and storing those encrypted passwords somewhere, where it be whether it be Dropbox if you want to have sort of synchronization between your devices. Uh, but what is the be- for those people who aren't really familiar? What what would be the benefit with an encryption program that is open source? Well, the the main benefit is that you can inspect the code yourself and you can build it yourself. So if you if it's open source, the source code is available, you can download that source code, read through it, make sure that it's not doing anything suspicious, and then build it yourself and then use it. Sorry, doesn't that mean, so this is the, the obvious question that any non-programmer is probably thinking right now. If it's if the code is actually available for anybody to look at, doesn't it mean then then that people could actually work out how the encryption works and then de-encrypt something? How the encryption works is actually well-known. All of these services use one of a few well-understood encryption protocols. And in fact, it's a, a commonly cited rule of what's called crypto, which is the, you know, the area of programming to do with security and encryption, that uh, don't roll your own crypto. That's what they say. Uh. If you write your own uh, attempt at an encryption algorithm, there is a very high chance that you will make a mistake whether it's a bug or it's just a naive security hole, that in the more mainstream, commonly used encryption implementations, those have already been found and tested and fixed. Because it's, it is very difficult, because even if you get the, the mathematics right, encryption is largely based on just doing lots of maths in a way that is difficult to reverse. I see. And takes a long time. So even if you get that right, there are potential other weaknesses, which are crazy. They're called, I think they're called side channels. And they are things like by noticing how long the operation took, people can take a guess as to how close they were to the password because it takes longer the further you are away from the password. Ah. There's a lot of things that you wouldn't have thought would be dangerous or, or would give the game away, but which can be exploited. So it's, it's very difficult to uh, roll good crypto. It's very difficult to program good cryptography. And it's, uh, it's generally advised to use one of the well-known implementations that's, that's already out there. And those mostly are open source. So 1Password, for example, although 1Password itself is a closed source program and service, the technology that it's using... I haven't looked this up, but I am sure it will be 
OpenSSL or one of the open source offerings? From a layman's point of view, that's quite mysterious because I think when you think from somebody like myself, I have no clue about anything to do with cryptography. From a layman's point of view, you just sort of think that, well, if cryptography, if you're seeing the wiring under the board and it's basically an explanation of how this code was created, like this encrypted code was created from a source string of letters, if you've basically seen how it works one way, then isn't it very, very simple to just reverse that and go back the other way and take the code and then reverse it back to with the original source password? Right. And that is the case with certain forms of encryption. For example, I think they call it Caesar's code or something like that. There's a, there's a, a form of encryption that is, was used by Julius Caesar or used by his army or something. It, it comes from those days, which is the, the classic one where basically you offset all the letters by some amount. Right. So if you imagine you've got all the letters laid out, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then you decide you're going to offset them by like five. So then underneath A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you write like F, G, H, I, J, K, L and so forth. And that's that's just a direct mapping. And then when you're writing your message, you you look at the letter you want in the first row and then you look down at the letter underneath it and you write that letter instead. And, in, you know, that's a very simple system. If somebody has this mapping they can very easily, they might not know how far you offset it, but they've only got 26 things that they have to try. So right. <laughs> they, can, they can try with all the different offsets and see which one actually makes words, right? Right. So that, that would be an example of, of a, obviously a very weak form of encryption that, um, that knowing the way that it works definitely helps you to decrypt it. In the case with strong encryption which is used by modern tools and used by things like your bank to encrypt your transactions on the internet and is also used by these password managers and iMessage uh, encrypts things under the hood uh, PGP email you know all these WhatsApp all these different things are basically using the same sorts of methods to do encryption mm. and that method is based on prime numbers okay so the idea is don't want to go into too much detail but it's very easy to i don't want to go into too much detail because i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i can't remember exactly how it, it's easy to go one way and very hard to go the other i see so the, the next question that i'm sure um uh, people who aren't familiar with cryptography and password management managers the next question i'm sure they're wondering about is Okay, so for example, if you have these commercial options such as 1Password, which costs something like $50, I think. I think they're on a subscription model now, actually. Oh, really? You pay. I'm, I'm still sort of grandfathered in with the old thing, and I think that might still be available. I'm not sure. Right. But they are moving more and more towards a subscription model where you pay a certain amount per month or per year. Okay, then. So assuming that um, uh, you have this commercial company running this service called 1Password, and you've, they, uh, you pay a certain amount every year for them to basically maintain this program that stores your passwords with an open source, essentially free encryption algorithm. Uh, and you also have another option in KeePass, which basically is entirely an open source solution for doing this and is maintained regularly by uh, you know, some very generous programmers around the world. Why would anybody go with 1Password? Is there any benefit to that? I'm asking this because I'm sure there are people who are listening who don't actually use password managers and are wondering, should I use a password manager? Uh, obviously, the benefits and the drawbacks are fairly obvious, as you just pointed out. All of your 
uh, passwords to all of your internet accounts are stored in the one place. You need one master one uh, master password. I believe that KeePass and one password as well. KeePass has a neat system where you can actually store a, a key file on, for example, a USB stick. So if you uh, if you really want, you can actually carry around a USB key, stick it into any computer. And if it's if you've got KeePass on the computer, which I think you can store KeePass on a portable drive as well, you can just stick it in there. And if you've got, well, actually having the key and the program in the same place is a bit stupid maybe, but you can create a physical key as well for your, your passwords. That's one thing that KeePass does. But anyway, what benefit is there for paying for a commercial service for this when all of it is available in open source and the core essential critical feature of it, the encryption algorithm, is open source anyway. Right. So, well, a couple of things there. Firstly, it's no problem to have the uh, key file and the program key pass on the same drive because the program key pass, of course, is something you can download from anywhere anyway. So it's not, you know, not having it on the same drive is not going to prevent somebody who's trying to hack into your thing from just downloading it. So that's just a convenience. The thing that you don't want to be in the same place is the file with all your passwords in and the key or password that is used to unlock that file. Right, right. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing, I, I think it's mostly convenience and user experience, to be honest. Mm. Like, KeePass offers the same benefits. And there's not... I don't think it's true to say that one password, because you're paying it's more secure or anything like that. Mm. But 1Password has a very nice app on the Mac and a very nice app on the iPhone. And I think it's got a Windows app as well. And it integrates. They've got a plugin to integrate with Safari. So you can just click a button. It will fill your passwords in for you. So, you know, it's it's nice and easy to use and smooth. And that's it, really. KeePass is, is perfectly good at what it does. And uh, it's a good option, especially, you know, if you're just starting and you want to try something and you don't want to spend any money, then you should definitely just try KeePass because it's free and it does the job. I, I only switched to one password because, you know, it was, it was very convenient. I was using passwords on both my phone and on my Mac and one password offers syncing through various services. I presume the KeePass clients do as well, but... Yeah, they, they they are actually both, you know, quite good mm. uh, at, at what they do. It's just that KeePass is the user interfaces that are available to use it are not quite as nice and easy to use as the 1Password one, in my opinion. But a everyone should use a password manager. Mm. And the thing that started this whole thing that I was about to say is that I had gone through and redone all my passwords with 1Password, but... I didn't realize that my Skype account was an old one from before Microsoft bought Skype. And so it was different from my Microsoft account. Ah. And so I had updated my Microsoft password with one password, you know, a generated password and one password. And in fact, with two-factor authentication as well. So that's super secure and used for nothing because I don't have a, an Xbox or a Windows computer or anything I might use it for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Skype was still using an old password from ages ago and I haven't logged into it for like five years, so I didn't notice. And that's the, that's the one that's been hacked. So the one thing I have left that I haven't switched over to use a password manager and use the most crucial thing about what a password manager does, apart from obviously keeping all your passwords secure, is that they have 
password generators inside them. So you don't have to think of a new password for every service or start reusing your passwords. You can have a different password for every single service and you don't even know what it is, mm. which is about as secure as it can get. You know, if somebody straps you to a chair and starts picking your nails off, you won't be able to tell them. <laughs> But perhaps you'd want to at that point. But. <laughs> That's a, oh, what a what a what a pleasant image to end that discussion topic on. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Um, I'm actually considering having a look at KeePass again after that discussion, just because uh, this is a much broader discussion, of course, when you're talking about uh, software marketing, software business models. You know, where you have one which is a subscription service, you can justify that by saying well, your regular payments will pay the salaries of the people who maintain the software. Right. However, you know, you could also say in this particular case, they're going to pay the people to maintain the software that's using an open source algorithm. Basically, they're maintaining the interface to something that's free. So if you're happy with an interface that's maybe slightly less convenient, which means you maybe need to do a few more clicks each time you need to enter a password or each time you need to create a new one and you want to save it, you know, there's maybe that that process is a little bit more long-winded. Uh, however, being open source, the whole sort of benefit of open source software is that everything is available for anybody to modify and anybody to um, to improve uh, or break, of course. Right, or put a backdoor in. Yep, yep. <laughs> that, yes, that's true. That, and the, the idea, of course, is that, well, okay, fine, but there's a famous book called or famous essay called the cathedral and the bazaar which talks about this the idea that there may be mistakes and there may be bugs but lots of eyes will eventually find it because there's so many people looking at the code it's not just the people in the company but also programmers around the world looking at the code so they they tend to find it that's all true and also you can inspect the code yourself to make sure you're not running anything you don't trust Mm. but that is kind of a theoretical benefit unless you're a a programmer right and b willing to devote a huge amount of time auditing this software before you start using it. Yeah. And then C, never update it unless you're going to go through that audit process again. Yeah. So there's, you know... It's interesting that uh, that benefit of open source software that, oh, well, you know, you can have a look under the hood and you can see how it works yourself is uh, often often um, suggested to me. It might be because many, many of my friends are programmers. It's often suggested to me and... Uh, uh, often when that's said, it's like, well, you can look under the hood and you, you can see how it works. But, you know, for, for the average user like me, you know, of course I can't do that. And so uh, yeah, often that sort of benefit of open source, you just have to trust that there are lots of very benevolent, very generous programmers around the world who are doing this on my for my benefit. Right. And you have to hope that somebody, one of the malevolent evil programmers didn't sneak in and slip a hack in just in the five minutes before you downloaded it. Which is also possible. But then because you are paying a private corporation money money regularly and everybody else is paying money regularly to this private corporation, does that therefore make it, you know, immune to that kind of problem? No, not at all. That I mean, I I am, you know, I, I said a couple of things which may sound like they're questioning this sort of value of open source, which isn't. I think open source is great. And I think it is a legitimate benefit of open source that you can inspect the code yourself. I'm just saying it's, you know, it's, it is sometimes a theoretical benefit. But nevertheless, with closed source software, of course, there's no way you can expect it. And all you have to go on is your trust in the company that are making it, the people that work there, and your trust that they 
don't want their company to get a bad image. So it's in their interests to keep the product secure right. and not put any backdoors. But just as somebody could sneak into an open source project and sneak in a change that uh, introduces a backdoor, it's entirely possible for a bad actor to get hired at a company and sneak in a change mm. that introduces a backdoor. And in fact, in that case, there will be fewer eyes looking at the code. And so it may take longer to get picked up. So there's, you know, that is, yeah, I'm not saying that closed source commercial software is the solution to that problem by any means. Mm. I think that the whole concept of open source uh, is such a, a wonderful idea and such a wonderful principle from an ethical point of view. And we need more of it, you know, in this day and age where everything is about uh, income and money and, you know, the bottom line. I think it's just wonderful that the idea that, you know, you would have people who are doing this basically uh, maybe to a certain degree for themselves, you know, because they enjoy it as a hobby project or something on the side, or just they, they enjoy the idea of the software and they're just eager to try and contribute in some way or other. And that's the main objective behind why they're contributing to something and, and lending their time to it, rather than so that they can, you know, make some money off it or because they're employed there to do so and this company's paying their rent. And, you know, it, it's just the whole concept of it. When you when you think about what it actually means that something is open source and that it's contributed uh, to by, you know, many, many generous programs lending their time to something because they enjoy it. It's wonderful, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, I think open source is great. It's not immoral to make money, though. I think that that is a thing that some a lot of sort of very diehard uh, and and also we're getting towards the line of there's a difference between what's called open source and free software, ah. where free software is is more what you're talking about, and it's you know Richard Stallman and the GNU project, and they they talk about how it's free as in freedom, not free as in beer, and they have a license called the GNU Public License GPL, which uh, allows people to use the code freely, but insists that any changes they make must also be shared under the same terms. I see. Microsoft said back in the day that it's a viral license, and they said it, it you know, to try and in a negative way. Uh, I don't mean it negatively, but it is sort of viral in that any project that includes any GPL source must therefore become GPL. It is it is possible to dual license it, so you are allowed to release it as GPL, but also release it separately under another license. But you do have to open the source code and release it under GPL. Uh, and then separate from that is the open source movement, which is somewhat more business friendly. They release the source code openly to the public, and they tend to use licenses like the BSD license or the MIT license or the Apache license or the Zlib license which are all much, in a sense, <laughs> ironically, freer than the GPL mm. in that you are allowed to take the code and do what you like with it. You can package it up and sell it. You can make modifications without giving those modifications back to the original author. Mm. You can put it in a commercial project, which is itself closed source. Mm. It allows you to do basically anything. Okay, I was, I, was, I was mixing up the two of those. I thought that open source equated to uh, GPL and that, that kind of, you know, uh, strictly non-commercial development. I was, I was mixing the two of those up. They're actually different things. They are. I mean, they, they sort of fall into the same bubble, but I think 
of the free software movement and of the GPL specifically as a kind of subset of open source. I see. Because the source is open. But in the case of the GPL, they are trying to bring about a future in which all software is open source. Right. Right. So it's in their interests to have this clause that says, if you use this code, you must also release your code as open source because they want, they do think that closed source software is immoral or unethical. I see. Whereas the open source movement is more, look, we get all these benefits from releasing the source. We get lots of people looking at it and finding our bugs. We get people contributing to it and, and helping with it for free. So it's actually advantageous to us uh, as, a, as a company to release some of this code as open source and take advantage of, of all the sort of cooperation with other companies who may be using it or with volunteers who are just interested and, and want to hack on the code. So it's a bit of a different nuance, although the end result in both cases, obviously, is that you can, you can look at the source and inspect it and rebuild it and use it. Well, that's fascinating. That's uh, it's interesting to hear that um, that breakdown from a, obviously a, a program of somebody who's um, much more familiar with the uh, the inner workings of it all than somebody as my, such as myself. But um, I guess uh, if you are then looking at, as you said, if you are then looking at uh, trying out a password manager if you don't have one already, uh, I can also recommend KeePass to get started with. And bear in mind that if you do go with KeePass, the idea of paying for a subscription a commercial password manager, you are basically getting a, a huge boost in convenience. But as far as security concerns, there's, there's not there's not much uh, benefit with the commercial software. This is the the convenience is is definitely there for one password. Though, especially if you're on a Mac, right? Um, you have you have like this companion app that runs in the background that sits up in the menu bar, and anytime you type a password into a a new website that you're, you're visiting for the first time, it'll ask you if you want to save it. And um, you can also just, it's just a, uh, when you go to a website, it's just a few clicks away to actually enter your, your username and password. Um, so it's, it is very, very convenient. But I believe that, I seem to recall that when I was using KeePass, it, it also is very convenient. I mean, it's not, I think there were some browser extensions that, that you can use with KeePass as well that perform similar kind of functions. I mean, it's a, a little bit more involved than one password, but definitely uh, um, if the idea of, Having it being open for programmers to investigate and to, to constantly audit each other's work uh, openly, uh, if that idea appeals to you from an ethical point of view, or you just want to save a buck, KeePass is the way to go. Right, yeah. I, I don't care which you use, but I strongly recommend, whoever you are, dear listener, that you use some sort of password manager, because in this day and age, more and more passwords are getting leaked you cannot afford to reuse passwords. You you will get hacked. I got hacked today, and I'm taking all this care. So it's <laughs> it's you probably already have been hacked. <laughs> um, so look, look into them. Choose LastPass or One Password or KeyPassX. It, it doesn't really matter. Also, you can use the inbuilt one on if you're using a Mac and or an iPhone. Uh, Safari comes with a password manager. It will generate passwords for you when you fill them in. And when it asks to save them for you, uh, that is also perfectly secure. So that's that's also a pretty easy option and integrated into all the Apple stuff if that's what you're using. So just just use something. One uh, thing that I'd like you, as we close up here, one thing I'd like you to link into the in the show notes is the 
the the fantastic webcomic XKCD. Ah, oh, the the one with the uh, the difficult to remember password. Yeah, thing that that's Troubadour something. Uh, yeah, there's one um, uh, episode that he did where uh, uh, I think he proposed that basically creating a sentence as a password is just as secure as a whole string of garbled letters and 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 uh, sort of. Uh, a mixture of upper and lower case. Just creating a sentence with capital letters at the start of each each uh, word. I think he, I think that's right. I think he found that that was. So what he's talking about there is entropy. We could really go into the weeds there. There, there is an argument on both sides that he is talking about a thing called entropy, which is basically that you want to increase the entropy of your password. Right. That the the higher the entropy, the more secure your password is. And there are a couple of ways to. There are essentially two dimensions in which you can increase it. You can increase the number of potential possibilities that each character may have. Mm. So if you only use lowercase letters, there are 26 possibilities. If you use lowercase and uppercase letters, there are now 52. And if you add numbers into the mix, then there's 62 yep. and so forth. And you can add symbols. So that's one dimension in which you can increase entropy. And the other dimension is in increasing the length of the password. And so what he's saying is that if you take an eight-letter password, which has letters, numbers, and symbols, the entropy for that will be less than like a a 25-letter sentence that is only composed of letters, Right. uh, which is true. Uh, But there's also more to security than just entropy, I think. There's, you know, words can be instead of just trying every combination of letters you can try every combination of words and, and things like that so right. it's not it's not totally black and white but it is a good comic 